you all may not know this, but all those weird verses that you may not know for that hymn we just sang are actually the original verses. That verse, uh, when we've been there 10,000 years, actually wasn't part of the original um, version of Amazing Grace. The uh, title that it was given there, Faith's Review and Expectation, is actually the original title, the way um, John Newton wrote it as well. And it's actually relevant to the topic we're going to talk about tonight. Y'all didn't plan that, but it's true. Because um, we're going to be looking at the very end of 2 Samuel. We're getting here now to the very end of David's life. Tonight we're going to talk about his last words and his mighty men. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 23, if you want to go ahead and and go there. If you have a Bible, you can. But, um, you know, the last words connect to the great promise that God had made him in 2 Samuel 7, where God promised that his, his kingdom, his dynasty, the Davidic king, line of kings, would be everlasting. And in response to that, David um, prayed this amazing prayer in the First Chronicles version, and that hymn is based on that First Chronicles prayer. So it's, it's connected to the life of David, in case you didn't know that. Uh, some people think that that hymn was written when John Newton got converted from being a slave trader, and he was out in the ocean somewhere. It's not true at all. Um, it was written for a New Year's Day sermon based on First Chronicles 17, where you would look back at your life and God's faithfulness, and then based on his promise to be our God and that he would make us his people, you can look forward with hope. And that, in a lot of ways, is what we're going to look at tonight because at the very end of David's life, his last words, or at least his official last words, are important and they're full of hope because of God's promise. We're going to look at that. But I did want to think a little bit about last words last words, and, um, and also about cool things that you find in books. Uh, what I mean is the other day I got uh, a book that I'd bought on eBay because it was a book about the lives of the hymn writers, and I like that kind of stuff. And so I bought this book, and I opened it up. It was from the 1800s. I opened it up. Maybe if you follow me on Instagram, you might have seen this picture. But it was, it was endorsed by the author to a guy named George L. Prentice. I happen to know who George L. Prentice is because he's the husband of Elizabeth Prentice. Elizabeth Prentice wrote a very uh, famous book called Stepping Heavenward. Maybe you've read it. Um, and also she wrote the hymn, More Love to Thee, O Christ, More Love to Thee. I was like, man, like they could have gotten a lot more money for this book if they had said that it was autographed to Elizabeth Prentice's husband. And I thought about books that I have where I've found little inscriptions that I didn't expect. And I thought about the first one that I ever got that way was when I was in college, when I was your age. And it actually is this book right here. It's by Charles Spurgeon. Now, this was back in the days when you could get cool old books cheaper than you can today. And it was, um, it was $6. And I found it in this used bookstore in Boston when I was first trying to figure out like what I believed about things. So I would go to used bookstores and buy books that I didn't really know much about. But I'd heard the name Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, and I bought this book. And I remember when I got, brought it home, it still will do this sort of thing. It'll basically fall open on this one page. If you just sort of, like, kind of just let it open, it'll always open on this page, page 95. And I've read these words. They're a little, this might freak you out a little bit. It freaked me out the first time I read them. It, it's from a chapter called Men Who Are Down. And the words are this, 
Mary left this book open at this page on her bed, the last of her reading. This was somebody's deathbed reading. And I always thought, how fascinating that they wrote this and then they lost track of the fact that this was the last book that Mary ever read. And it ended up in a used bookstore and I bought it for $6. Last words. You just pay a little more attention to last words, don't you? I mean, you might, maybe you're like, like me and you're like, I want to read that chapter. What did this woman read her very last thing that she read? I told you, it's kind, of, it's kind of freaky in a little bit. Maybe you're like, oh, I don't want to touch this book. It's, you know, a dead person, you know, had this in their possession. Well, you know, back in the 1800s, yeah. And then I thought about some other books I have about last words. These are two of my favorites. Dying Testimonies of the Saved and the Unsaved. Somebody wrote, this book is a reprint. It was written back in the 1800s. Somebody wrote an entire book of deathbed scenes of people who knew Jesus and people who didn't. And I would um, contend that it's a little manipulative in some way, especially the stories of the unsaved. They're really like horrible stories. And so it has a horrible story and then it has a story. And it's almost like, you know, if you're a Christian, then you'll have a great deathbed experience. And it's a little over the top. And then I thought about one of the most powerful books I know. And this is called A Cloud of Witnesses. Um, Here's the full title, A Cloud of Witnesses for the Royal Prerogatives of Jesus Christ being the last speeches and testimonies of those who suffered for the truth in Scotland since the year 1680. Basically, when Scottish Protestants were being martyred throughout the 17th century, one of the things that they would do before they went to the scaffold or before they were tied to a stake and drowned or whatever manner they chose to kill them because they disagreed about church government generally. It's pretty interesting. We don't generally have such strong opinions about church government that we would die for it. But they thought recognizing Jesus as the king of the church rather than the king of England was something worth dying for. And before they did that, they would write down basically their spiritual last will and testament and their testimony. And it's pretty sobering stuff to read. Tonight we have some important last words as well. We have the last words of the life of David. The last words, and I would just say we should pay attention to last words. Pay attention to last words. Let's, let's read these last words. Because these aren't just any last words. They're the last words of David. But not only that, as you're going to see in this passage, what's particularly emphasized is that these are God's words spoken through David. So, if you have a Bible, let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 23. The oracle of David. Actually, sorry, it starts with verse 1. Now, these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. The oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. Now these are his words. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? 
For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper. For, sorry, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. And then our passage here in chapter 23 switches to a different story. It's actually a story that chronologically takes place before the last words of David. And we're going to talk about why then does it appear in 2 Samuel after the last words of David. These are the last words of David, but then it's going to talk about this other situation here. And it starts at verse 8. For these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joseph, Bethshebeth, attacked the Mennonite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Adji the Herite. Herite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adulam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Raphim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem, which is David's hometown where he grew up. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruai, was chief of the thirty, and he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. 
And then it goes through the list of all these mighty men. But I want you to notice particularly, let's jump down to verse 38, where it says, Ira the Ithrite, Gareb the Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. Let's pray together, and then we'll dig into this rather perplexing text. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that these are your words that you have spoken through David and through Samuel. And we thank you that you have not left us to just grope around in the dark, wondering who you are and what you're like, but you have given us your words. And we pray now that we could attend to them and that they would be life to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pay attention to last words. This is an interesting passage, isn't it? We get the last words, kind of the last will and testament of David. It's not unusual in the Bible. Actually, most of the big great figures, Moses and Jacob and all these different folks, often will have this sort of last words where they get to kind of say, here's our final thing. What's interesting about David's last words is this focus of the covenant and the hope that it brings. Now, what, the way it starts, right, is it, it focuses on, look, these are God's words. It takes actually a couple verses to say that, doesn't it? It wants to really make the point that these are not just David's random words. These aren't even David's well-thought-through words. These are God's words. So what David is relating to us here is a vision that God gave him, words that God gave him. David's hope is not based upon his ability to guess what the future is going to be like. His hope certainly isn't in his own legacy because of what a great father and a great king he's been. As you've been with us this semester, you've realized that while David had some some good things that he did and the Lord blessed him, it was not because he was a great man and certainly not because he was a perfect man. And lest you might think that here at the end of his life, Because a lot of times we get to the end of people's lives, you know, they're always like, you know, at the end of people's lives, they have sort of the the special of some celebrity or some political figure that died, and they just kind of talk about all the great things that the person did, and people that maybe knew them wonder, well, don't they know this and this and this and this about this person? That's not what's going on here. David is not, you know, wanting to sort of paint this beautiful whitewashed picture of who he is. The, The passage ends with mentioning Uriah the Hittite. And you remember who Uriah the Hittite was? He was the husband of Bathsheba. Bathsheba is the woman that David took for his own, had sex with her, she got pregnant, and then David had Uriah the Hittite, one of his loyal, mighty men, killed to cover up his sin. So you can't read this passage and just say, oh man, David, what a great guy. He served God well. He served his country well. No, Uriah the Hittite, there it is. It sticks out at you. And David understands that his legacy is not going to be great because of what he's done. Uh, what we didn't have time to look at this semester was the whole story of David's family and his kids. And they're a mess. Absalom, for instance, his son, had led a rebellion against David. And eventually was killed. And David was grieved over it. Over and over, David is kind of a softy when it comes to his rebellious children. 
and it's made for a mess of the whole kingdom. Eventually, Solomon is going to come to the throne, but after Solomon dies, the kingdom of Israel is going to split into two halves. Not a great legacy and not a great witness to David as a father and as a king. There's a lot of fatal flaws in him, but he still has hope for the future. And verse 5 shows us why. He says, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. Now, when he talks about this everlasting covenant, he's thinking back again to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God said this. Uh, where, here's I have. Yeah. And your house, this is what God said to David. And, and that word house in Hebrew can be referred to like your physical dwelling place, but it also can refer to your dynasty. In other words, the people that are going to follow you in this line, in this lineage, okay? And David is the king. He has a house, the house of David, like the house of Tudor, right? There's sort of this whole dynasty. And that's what it's talking about. And here God says, and your house and your kingdom, God promises to David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It's a very clear promise, a huge promise, and a promise that at many times in David's life, and certainly in the lives of his children and their children and their children, you really wonder if God is going to be able to keep this, and if he will keep this. And yet the Bible says that Jesus himself is the son of David. You remember the census he had to go where? His parents. Back to Bethlehem. Because he's of the lineage of David. Jesus is. Well, that gets us to this next little section here. Who's referred to in verse 3 and 4? And to help you understand this section, we really need to look at a little more literal version of verses 3 and 4. And if you look at the various English translations, they have some variation in the way they translate that. The reason is because Hebrew often is very succinct and you have to kind of supply the relationship between the two words. I think, Sue Ann, isn't this true somewhat of Chinese, where they'll kind of put words together in the context, you have to understand how they relate to one another? Isn't that true? I think I'm right. I know it's more complicated than that. But there's some languages that work that way. They don't necessarily spell out all the connecting words. Hebrew is like that here, particular. And here, let me give you a little more literal rendering of verse 3. Here's, here's a, a more literal rendering. The God of Israel, and I have this on the sheet there under, under two there. The God of Israel has said to me, the rock of Israel has spoken. Ruler over mankind, righteous. Ruler, fear of God. And as the light of morning when the sun rises, morning without clouds because of brightness, because of rain, grass from earth. Now, some translations, like the ESV, which maybe some of y'all were looking at, or the NIV, take this as basically being a description of the ideal of a king. That David is remembering what the king should be like, and he's sort of laying it out there. Remember this. But I think the better way to take it is as David relating a vision of one he sees who is going to come. Now, of course, the one that he sees who is coming will be the realization 
of the ideal of the king. But this is not so much a statement about when this happens or how kings should rule like this. It's more a promise of the future based on David's faith in this promise that he mentions in verse 5 and the word of the Lord that's been spoken to him. The way David sets this up in the first several verses, he's saying, look, this is something God spoke to me. And the way he makes that emphasis, it seems that what he's saying is introducing sort of a new aspect of what God has revealed. He's not just repeating, oh, hey, by the way, the king needs to act righteously and fear God. That's been said so many times that it seems a little strange for him to set it up so strongly. The oracle of God. The words of the God of Israel spoken to me. The way he reiterates that gives you the sense that what he's going to say here is something new or at least unveiling a little more. And this, I think, is the way to think of the relationship, for instance, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you have the new concealed. In the New Testament, you have the old revealed. And here there's a little more revealed. And what's revealed is that there is a ruler coming one day who will be righteous, who will be one who fears the Lord. And the result of this one coming will be flourishing. And that's what you get in verse 4. He dawns on them like the morning light. That dawn like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. All of these images are piled up to help you understand that there's one coming who will bring that kind of beauty and that kind of flourishing. The idea of the Old Testament of what God is going to bring is not just salvation in the sense of I get to have a relationship with God and I go to heaven when I die. The, the, the vision and the hope of the Old Testament that carries right through into the New Testament is much bigger than, them, than that. It's carried up together in this word shalom, which refers not just to peace like an absence of hostility, but it means everything in its right order. Everything glorifying God as it was made to. Everything being made right. And you actually get a sense of that as you go down into verse 6. But it says, Worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them, and again, I think this is still a reference to the man that David is seeing in this vision. The man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Verse 6 and 7 are frankly talking about judgment upon those who don't want this beautiful kingdom and this beautiful king. And what you have here, David saying, because of this promise that my kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom, the realization of that will be one who will come one day, a ruler who will be beautiful, whose kingdom will be beautiful. It'll be like grass springing up because of the rain, which in a desert culture is a pretty powerful image of flourishing. And it will be a king and a ruler and a kingdom where justice will prevail. And those who don't want this beautiful king and this beautiful kingdom will be dealt with. The kingdom of of heaven is spoken of here. The king of God, as well, will not be boring or drab. Look back at verse 5. 
It says here, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire? See, David says, this king, this promise that he's made, that I will be your God and you will be my people, it doesn't just, it's not just about sort of keeping your, your nose clean and doing all the right things so that God loves you. It's about your desires being met and realized too. And for a lot of people, especially if you've been raised in church, that might strike you as sort of a strange thing. Because for a lot of Christians, they don't think of desires being fulfilled as being part of the Christian vision of life, frankly. For a lot of people, particularly a lot of, a lot of young people, they, they kind of you know, seem to get this idea, I think, from their parents and from their churches, that God would rather you squelch all of your desires so that you would obey him. But the Bible actually doesn't say that. The Bible actually talks about desires as being something that God has planted and God wants to fan into flame, which is a pretty interesting thing to think about. Um, and that takes us to this next little section. I actually think these things are, are connected, as we're going to see, because the idea that in verse 5 it talks about these desires is really interesting in light of this story about David expressing this longing for water from the well of his boyhood home. Talk about nostalgia. Talk about longing. He's out in, he's not in Jerusalem at this point. This is hearkening back, this story in verse 13 to 17 is hearkening back to a time when David felt a, a real longing and a real desire but before we get to that, let's, let's just zoom out a second and look at the mighty men. Here's the way I think of this. We have the last words of David, which are particularly focused on the kingdom that's coming, the covenant promise, and the one who will be the fulfillment of that promise. And then you get this story and this list of the mighty men. And it's pretty interesting, right? Now, I will say this, lest you be upset by all the killing. And, and, you know, why does the Bible glorify all these people that kill people? Like, killing people, 300 people with a spear is pretty gruesome. Killing so many people that your hand really literally freezes because it becomes so cramped. It freezes to your sword and you can't even unclench your hand. That's a pretty graphic image. Hand-to-hand -hand combat with these kind of weapons is not pretty. But lest you be I guess, just completely destroyed by this stuff. And you're like, what in the world is this doing in the Bible? Here's what you need to understand. David is the anointed king of Israel. At this point in the history of God's people, one of the things God is showing is that his kingdom is not just spiritual. It's not just about reading your Bible and about your soul going to heaven when you die. It's about justice happening in this place. And the anointed king of Israel acts on God's behalf to deal with the enemies of God and those who have set themselves against his kingdom. A lot of us are a little squeamish about that idea. The Bible's not squeamish about it at all because violence and sin and oppression are everywhere. And God's kingdom does not, does not ignore those things. Yes, David is a flawed man. He's not the perfect ideal. But do you understand that when Jesus comes, there will be judgment. And all things will be made right. And part of what that means is really bad stuff. 
for those who would still stand in opposition to him and his kingdom. And if you, if you eliminate the idea of judgment and even violence from the Bible and your idea of God, you end up eviscerating the gospel of content. It's a great quote by this guy, Richard Niebuhr, wrote this back in the 40s about the more progressive liberal mainline denominations. But in a lot of ways, I think it's, well, I think we've come perilously close to this in our own day because we're just kind of squeamish about these sorts of passages. He said this, that a God, this is sort of his way of kind of making fun of the theology he heard from a lot of pastors in his day. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through Christ without a cross. In his day and age, he felt that a lot of what was being preached was, you know, just love your brother, be kind to people, be good. And he said, that's not the gospel at all. And, and, and you do have to ask yourself, if I just can't deal with the Bible glorifying people who have stood up for the kingdom of God and have fought against the enemies of God, why? And maybe I need to just wrestle with that a little more. Maybe I need to talk to somebody about that because I need to move on. Here's, here's what I want you to under, understand as well. God has given David some incredible men. The, the Bible lists this list of people, and it's pretty interesting. I didn't read the whole list, but 37 men get named. And here's something just cool to think about. There are times maybe when you've been reading the Bible and you come to something like this and you just skip over it like I have been. But don't do that when you're reading the Bible on your own. Here's why. God seems to really love listing his people. Do you ever think about that? I mean, in a, in a world where so often you feel like you're just kind of anonymous, you're kind of a number, you're kind of just sort of this mass kind of group of people, and you, want, you long to be known and cared for as an individual, the God of the Bible loves to make lists where he names people. And you've got to understand, like, to, to write in this day and age, it was very expensive. The materials, the scrolls, like this seems like an extravagant waste. But God loves, he seems to delight in listing the names of his people. And I was thinking about a couple of years ago, um, had the opportunity with some musicians, former students, to play a concert at the Ryman. And we did this big hymn sing there. And um, I, sometimes people have asked me, like, what was that like for you to do that? And I will tell you, honestly, what I was feeling most in that moment was, man, look at my kids. Look at how awesome they are. Like, my, my overwhelming feeling was, man, these students that I had 10 years ago, look at them now. Look at them, everybody. We sold out the rhyme and singing hymns. That was awesome. But what I was most excited about is that my friends got to show who they were and what they could do right? And I think there's something right about that. God makes lists and he names people. And these mighty men are great people. But here's what you need to understand. They're a gift of God to David. And you see that in a couple places here. And it's important that you see this because this kind of passage, the mighty men, is a passage that has been misunderstood so often. People preach this passage saying, be like these mighty men. Man, if we could have not just 37 mighty men like this, but a whole army of mighty men like this. Think of what we could do for God. But that's not the emphasis of this text. The emphasis of this text is not, you should be like these mighty men. Get yourself a spear. 
Learn how to use it. No, that's not the emphasis here. The emphasis is, look at verse 10, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Look at verse 12. He took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. Over and over again, we're called back to remember it's the Lord who gave the victory, just as it is the Lord who secured the covenant, and the Lord is the one who's going to bring this ruler, Jesus, one day to sit on the throne, and it's the Lord who made these promises to David, right? This is not a passage encouraging us to be like David. Again, Uriah the Hittite there keeps you from thinking that. It's not a passage that encourages you to be like David's mighty men. And I think you see that when we look at this little verse 13 to 17. Strange story. A strange and beautiful story of devotion. Look at this in verse 13 through 17. David basically is in this cave. He can't be in Jerusalem. The Philistines are camped in Bethlehem. He's in a cave with his men. And he, he basically utters out loud what he's thinking. He doesn't say it to them. They overhear him just saying it. I, I, I kind of picture it as him sighing. Oh, if only I could drink of the water from the well in Bethlehem. Now listen, he's in a stronghold in a cave. You don't have a stronghold in a cave if you don't have a water supply. Okay? He has water. He's not saying, I'm thirsty and we're going to die unless we get some water, and I know there's some water down there. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I am longing for that water that I tasted so sweet when I was growing up in Bethlehem. And I think even more than that, he's aching for things to be made right. Remember, at this point, David is the anointed king of Israel. But he doesn't even have control over his own boyhood home. He's the king over all Israel, and he can't even go to Bethlehem to drink of the water. It's not just nostalgia. It's also an aching for the kingdom to come. Because if the kingdom had come, there would be no Philistines in Bethlehem. And he'd be able to drink of this sweet water that God had provided. Heart longings matter to God. But heart longings can never be ultimate for us. I think what's interesting about this passage is that, is that David gives voice to this heart longing. And do you know what? These mighty men, they love him dearly, but they take his heart longing expressed and they think, they think that that should be their marching orders. Now, at one level, we're all like, and in some ways you're like, man, I wish I had a boyfriend like that. <laughs> I, wish, I wish I knew some boy that, that did that. If they could, that their whole life was about trying to figure out my heart longings so that they could fulfill them for me. And then you might wonder, well, but there's a weird story because they do what he wants. And what does he do? He pours out the water. Now, think about this situation. The Philistines are there. It's at the gate. The gate is probably the most heavily defended part of Bethlehem. Three guys go there. They don't sneak in. 
They fight their way in, which means, I guess, that two of them had to fight off the Philistines while one of them is getting water out of a well. And then they have to fight their way back without spilling the water. And then they bring it to David, and he says, oh, I can't drink this. And he pours it out. But they don't get mad, do they? It's a weird story, isn't it? Here's, I think, the way to understand this. David understands that his longings are not ultimate. That there's something even more important than what he's longing for. Something even more important to this water than this water. The lives of his men, he says, are not worth this. He says, this water is like your blood. And this sacrifice is not something that I am worthy of. You see that? He says, you, you have shown the kind of devotion to me that only God himself deserves. And so he doesn't just pour it out. Notice it says, he pours it out to God. He pours it out to God. That's why they don't get mad. They understand that God is ultimate. Now again, his longings, I think, are more than just a longing for water. It's longing for things to be made right. But when it comes down to it, even more important than his longings are God himself. And even the king of Israel does not deserve the lives of his men poured out for him. And so he pours out the water, which to him is like their blood. He says he doesn't deserve the sacrifice of their lives. Only God deserves that kind of devotion. But here's the thing, guys. The astonishing message of the gospel tonight is that there is one who does deserve that kind of devotion, that kind of radical love. And yet, he's the one who's so devoted to you and to me that he doesn't just risk his life, he gives his life. And not for his friends, but for his enemies. Consider these words from Romans chapter 5. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And a couple of verses later, Paul goes on and says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, listen, it really matters how you read the Bible stories. If you read this as a be like the mighty men or be like David story, you will do one of two things. You'll either despair because how could you, how could you turn down somebody worshiping you? I mean, man, don't you kind of want that? And how could you ever measure up to these mighty men who at the risk of their lives earned this incredible gift for their king? Let me tell you, you don't measure up and neither do I. If you think you need to be like the mighty men for God to love you, you will despair or you will, well, you just have to be a poser 
And you have to pretend that you're a lot better than you really know you are in your heart. Or you could put, become kind of triumphalistic. In other words, you could say, well, we need a bunch of mighty men, and I'm going to just keep preaching to these people until we make us a whole army of mighty men. You ever seen the movie Jesus Camp? Anybody ever seen that? Yeah, it's scary, isn't it? So, you know, there's, there's certainly a stream in evangelical Christianity that basically is trying to train up people to take over politically and take over the country for Jesus because we know what's best. And that's, what, that's where you get here. We need an army of people, maybe not with literal swords, but, you know, basically able to sort of take over the country for Jesus. But this isn't a passage that points us to the mighty men. It's a passage that points us to God and the ruler he's going to send one day. The only true mighty man, but the one who triumphed by dying for his enemies. Right? But let me just tell you, seeing Jesus' devoted love is the only thing that will help draw out your heart devotion where it needs to go. Jesus' devoted love. Let me think, when you think about Christianity, do you first and foremost think about what you need to do or about what Jesus did? And it's a really important question. So many people, when they read the Bible, they read it and, and what they get out of it is, oh, I need to be doing this and I need to be doing that. It's fascinating. It's one of the reasons why the longer people have been around Christians and the longer they've been in church and the longer they've been reading the Bible, if they don't understand God's grace, they actually become psychologically worse off than unbelievers. Because if you read the Bible as basically telling you over and over again what you need to do and you're not doing it and you don't know what to do about that, or how that is going to be covered for, then, man, you pretty much quit reading the Bible. I talk to students all the time who are like, yeah, I kind of don't read my Bible anymore. And as you start to probe, you find, well, why would they want to read their Bible? They just feel bad every time they read it. But when you read a story like this and you get a new picture of God's devotion, David says, I'm not worth this kind of devotion. This kind of devotion it's something only God himself deserves. And then you realize that the God who deserved your devotion is the one who's so devoted to you that he died for you, the one who's not devoted to him. Isn't that amazing? That's the gospel. That's the upside down nature of the kingdom. The only one who deserves your devotion died for you who aren't devoted to him. And when you begin to understand that, it changes your heart. That's the heart of the gospel. So when you come to this story, read this as an amazing picture into the devotion that God deserves. And then think about the devotion that he shows to us. Because he didn't say, my blood is too precious. He freely gave it up. He freely gave it up. That's amazing.